Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome, everybody, to Finding Hermes. I hope you're ready to walk through those doors and lay your cards on the table. With us, we have the honor of having back Bernardo Castrup to discuss his book, The Metaphysics of Jung. How are you, Bernardo? I'm doing great. It's a great pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yes. uh, As we were talking before the record button, uh, really enjoyed your book as I've enjoyed uh, all the books that I've read from you. But uh, your chapter six got me literally emotional, and we definitely want to cover that. And uh, but tell us, how did you come to know Jung? It seems uh, the story you were on a vacation and ran into a bookstore for <laughs> destiny synchronicity. What <laughs> that's right. Uh, I was a teenager, I think I was 13 or 14, 14 I think I was, and we were on a family trip to the mountains, and uh, I was just roaming around one of those mountain villages, you know, completely safe, not not much happens, and I sort of bumped into a bookshop, and uh, in one of the stands, there was this very prominently displayed book, uh, The I Ching, which I knew nothing about, but it had a nice cover. And as a 14-year-old, you get attracted to that uh, peculiar cover. And I started you know, just browsing it. And there was a preface by one Carl Gustav Jung, who I had never heard of uh, until that point. And, uh, and I read the first couple of pages. And, uh, and I was fascinated by it. It's, uh, he, he offered me a, a path towards recognizing the plausibility of things that uh, up to that point I would have dismissed without a second thought, as absurd, as nonsensical. Uh, But by arguing so logically, um, he sort of opened a path for my recognizing that, okay, there may be something in in all these things that I don't normally take seriously. And then that had consequences throughout my life. Yeah, I mean, th- there's definitely parallels with your work in Jung. Um, I would say, uh, as you write in your book, the idea or what Jung was trying to do, he was trying to find a middle path between the rank materialism of the 19th century, which obviously ruled the 20th century, and the superstitious spirituality of the Middle Ages and most of human history. So you would say, that's really where Jung sort of tells us all, hey, there is a middle path we can go for us seekers. 
I think um, Jung by nature was a religious person uh, open to what we might call, you know, things beyond the ordinary. That, that was his nature. But his education, you know, end of the 19th century in Basel in Switzerland, you know, you, that was one of the great bastions of materialism. <laughs> um, so he had a very, very traditional and materialistic education at the point when materialism was dominating the whole of academia. Um, and he had to, to negotiate his way through that. He, throughout his life, he tried to maintain this image of a empirical scientist, uh, but he just couldn't avoid himself. He couldn't avoid being himself. So he, he had multiple slips in, <laughs> not only in his uh, colloquial writing, but in, in, in his technical writing as well, in which he sort of clothed with very scientific analytic language uh, a postulate or an insight uh, that was totally non-materialist uh, in nature, even religious uh, in nature. So he, he, he couldn't really hide what his real position was, and he was anything but a materialist. Actually, in this regard, he was very outspoken in the second half of his life. Mm. He was very outspoken against materialism, a, a position he considered outright uh, stupid. Yeah, towards the end of his life, he was in his I don't give a shit uh, mode. It's like, I'm retired. I'm just going to say what I want to say about evil and the, 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 the spiritual world. But, but he really was an empiricist. I mean, he, even though he had his visions with the red book and the black books and all that, uh, he believed I am simply recording and noting what's going on in the world. He was an empiricist, uh, uh, 100% in, in a broadened definition of empiricism, in the sense that uh, he considered direct first-person experience data, not uh, something to be dismissed. He considered it important data. He was keenly aware, though, that um, if you cannot have uh, a statistic underpinning for that first-person empirical data, then it's purely anecdotal. So he, he spent decades uh, trying to find the commonalities across the direct uh, visionary experience of people, be them people who had religious insights through prayer or meditation or schizophrenic patients. Um, both of them had visions, hallucinations, whatever you want to call it, which Jung took very seriously and he strived to find the commonality, the underlying regularities across this statistical multitude of first-hand experience. And when he found these regularities, which he called the archetypes, um, he felt confident to, to go public with his main hypothesis, which is the hypothesis of the collective unconscious. Yeah, and uh, this definitely dovetails into your work because as you write, People assume Jung was might be a dualist, that there was psyche matter. But as you write, uh, I think you use the, the example, there's gradients of color. And in your work, yeah, consciousness sort of flows through reality, isn't it? I mean, you and Jung definitely agree on this, on reality. Yeah, yeah he, 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 he stated many times that uh, he believed the psyche to be primary in the sense that it's non-reducible. He, in a letter, uh, he wrote that for him, the psyche was anousia. And anousia is an unambiguous Greek word, meaning something with standalone existence. In other words, something non-reducible, foundational, fundamental, primary. So there is no doubt about that. Now, where there can be legitimate doubt, if you study him superficially, is in what he meant by psyche, because for him, the psyche contained the conscious and the unconscious. Um, so it, it, what makes the unconscious psychic instead of purely physiological, you might ask? And the reason for this uh, confusion is that today our understanding of the word consciousness is that of phenomenal consciousness. In other words, if there is experience, then there is consciousness. Right. But Jung defined consciousness in a more restrictive way. For Jung, for, for you to be conscious, you not only have to experience, you have to know that you are experience, experiencing. 
In other words, there has to be metacognition, self-reflection, self-awareness of yourself as a subject of experience distinct from the contents of your experience. And today, um, that's much more restrictive than what we re refer to as consciousness today. Uh, today, the correct technical term for what Jung meant by consciousness would be metaconsciousness or conscious metacognition. Um, and because he defined consciousness so restrictively, he opened room for the unconscious within the psyche. Mm -hmm. But what he truly meant is that the psyche means experiential. Something is psychic if it is experienced. Uh, but some of that, that experience can be metacognitive. You can know that you experience it. And others they need not necessarily be metacognitive. You may experience pain without knowing that you're in pain, for instance. It happens a lot with men, less so with women. <laughs> uh, so for him, the psyche was experience. And if you understand that, then definitely Jung was not a dualist or a dual aspect monist. None of this. This is very clear in his work. He was a flat out idealist or a cosmopsychist, which is the, the modern technical uh, word for it. For him, all of existence was psychic or experiential or in consciousness. It's just that only a subset of that could be accessed through self-reflective introspection. And that is what he called consciousness. Mm, fascinating. And uh, uh, very important to Jung was the idea, was the psyche, the soul. I mean, he starts the red book, my soul, my soul, where are you? That was his mission. He was going to find out, as some have said, that we all have a soul. We all have a psyche. What is the structure of Jung's uh, psyche? And for the audience, I will have a, some diagrams I got from Bernardo's book. So he, he postulated three main segments to the psyche. Now we have to keep in mind that for Jung, the, 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 the separation was not sharp. Uh, it was a sort of fuzzy boundary, but he could identify three main themes. The first one would be consciousness, which are the things that you experience and you know that you experience them. And these are the things that you can report. Uh, if you have pain and you know that you have pain, you can say to somebody else, I am in pain. So the things that you can report, the things that you can place within a cognitive context um, in which you make associations with other contents of experience, like uh, uh, I have a mother and uh, you know that a mother is the person who gave birth to you, from whom you came. So you have all this, this, this associative web around the concept mother that's also part of consciousness. So all these things that we can report, things that we know that we experience was consciousness. Now, and of course, it's preeminently personal, things that you can report, things that you know, these are personal experiences. Now, underlying consciousness, Jung postulated a personal unconscious. And again, the word unconscious is misleading here. It doesn't mean that it's not experiential, it just means beyond the, the, the reach of explicit introspection. Now, those are experiences that you are having, you don't know that you are having them, and they are personal to you. For instance, repressed anger, which you may be feeling all the time, but if somebody asks you, do you feel anger? You might honestly reply, no, I don't feel any anger. Well, you do. It's right. Especially there. if you're a man. <laughs> Especially <laughs> if you're a man. Yeah, yeah. Or or regret or shame about certain things or certain desires that are considered bad by the culture in which you're inserted. Certain sexual impulses or whatever. Um, for instance, you could be uh, a homosexual, have homosexual tendencies, but not recognize them. And then those homosexual feelings would become part of your personal unconscious. They are experienced, they are phenomenally conscious, but they are not accessible to, uh, through introspection. You don't know that you're having those feelings. Now, the third and by far the largest part of the psyche, which Jung equated with the whole of existence, is the collective unconscious. Those are experiential contents that not only you cannot access through explicit introspection, but they are not particular to you. They are shared between you and everybody else. Uh, um, Jung called those, the regularities of the collective unconscious, the archetypes, which you may equate to instincts in some way. Uh, um, things that drive us from a very primordial uh, ur, uh, uh, level uh, that sort of are 
more part of nature than part of ourselves as individuals, but upon which our own personal psyche is built, the collective foundations of our mental inner life. And the collective unconscious is the distinguishing concept in Jungian psychology. It's what uh, uh, made a clear distinction from Freud's uh, psychology. For Freud, not only the unconscious is not creative, it's just a repository of discarded contents of consciousness, but it's always personal. Even though there may be similarities across people, for Freud, those similarities might be attributable to genetics. And although Jung also appealed to genetics in certain interviews in an attempt to sort of conform to the mainstream uh, view of things, in his technical writing, it's more than obvious. It's, it's not ambiguous at all that the, the, the collective nature of the unconscious for him was not that you have a copy of it and I have another copy of it provided by my genes, <laughs> but that it was really collective. It was the foundation of nature upon which we rise uh, as you know, flowers in spring. And uh, <clears throat> I don't want to be crude here, but uh, it has, it's almost like in the last year or two, I'm starting to, as they say, get young when it, comes out at you. I think a lot of it is because uh, I started studying complexes and complexes, Jung and new age circles, other circles, you hear a collective unconscious, synchronicity archetypes, but complexes never really gets addressed, even though Jung thought it was so important. I think he wanted to originally call it like complex psychology or something. And when you study complexes, and then you see the shadow, and again, I don't want to be crude, but it, it almost seems like you and I and everybody else, Bernardo, we're all just schizophrenic. We're just a, a pastiche of all these energies coming at the ego. The shadow's coming. The complexes are coming from this side and that side. The unconscious is sending energies. And do you ever, what do you think of that, or do you feel that way? You, you look in the mirror and said, is there really a Bernardo? Is Jung right, this vast ocean of <laughs> psychic energies? We are like uh, little sa sailing boats in the middle of an Atlantic storm. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, and we have the illusion that the boat is going in the direction we are steering it. No, it's not. <laughs> it's, uh, the, the boat is going where the wind is pushing it, where the currents are pushing it. And, it, uh, and if it doesn't capsize, it's because nature still is not making it capsize. It's not because we can hold our own. Um, uh, we are very tiny, very tiny psychic complexes or, or uh, dissociated elements mm -hmm. of a unfathomable ocean of mentation of psychic contents that underlie all nature. And uh, in that sense, we are parts of nature. We are not separate from it. And we have very little power in steering the boat. I think our freedom limits itself to, do I resist where nature is bringing me? Or do I willingly go with it? You will end up in the same place. It's a matter of how much you will suffer while you're getting there. How much pain do you want? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The winds and the currents will blow the boat where they will blow the boat. And the question is, will you row against it? Or you just go for the ride and try to be in service to nature. And I think that's one of Jung's greatest insights, that our lives are sacrificial. Uh, we are here to, to render a service to nature. Um, and you might as well just go along with it, but always try to be conscious of it in the Jungian sense, in the metacognitive sense. Try to be aware of what's happening in you and around you. Don't resist it, but become aware of it. Because uh, for Jung, this is what ultimately really brought existence into existence. Things only truly exist once a metacognitive subject takes notice of them explicitly and says, this is happening, this is going on. For Jung, uh, we are the eyes through which nature becomes self-reflectively aware. And therefore, it's through us that nature really exists and comes into existence. He had a, a major insight about it in his trip to Africa, I believe in the 1920s. Uh, when he went to Africa, and, uh, and, and, and that was his insight, watching a sunset in the plains of the Kalahari, that uh, we are the eyes through which nature recognizes the sun. 
Yeah, beautifully said. And you talked about the first time you encountered Jung. I'm going to share my first time. I was uh, maybe 15. I was reading Alan Moore's The Watchmen. And at the end of one of his chapters, there's a quote, say, uh, as far as we can discern, the whole purpose of life is to kindle is, is to kindle a light of right. meaning in the darkness of mere being. And, That's and, it. That's a and quote. I, and I remember in 15, I was like, this is it. Because I didn't take it as I'm going to make a story about the universe so that, you know, I'll be comforted before I die. But I felt, oh, no, it's an interactive thing. The universe, I can offer the universe life itself, uh, intelligence itself. Is that... Was I right in thinking that when I was yeah, 15? We, it's through our metacognitive recognition that um, nature's existence ultimately becomes validated. Otherwise, the whole thing is just the movement of an ocean of unconsciousness. Unconsciousness in, in the Jungian sense, meaning instinctive experience that doesn't recognize itself. It's like a leaf in the wind. You just experience, but you never raise your head above the flow, the instinctive flow, to take notice that you are experiencing and of what you are experiencing. And this raising of your psychic head above the flow of instinct is given by metaconsciousness. It's our ability to separate ourselves as subjects from the contents of our experience. It's this separation that grants existence to that experience. The moment we point at it and say, I am having that experience, as opposed to being the experience. Um, if you're hungry and you're not metaconscious, conscious, um, then for all intents and purposes, you are the hunger. Because that's your whole experience, the hunger. Um, but when you become meta metacognitive or metaconscious or conscious in the Jungian sense, then you know that you are hungry. And it's by that act of metacognitive knowing that you bring the hunger into existence. And by the same token, you bring the sunrise into existence, the animals, the earth, the stars, the moon, everything else. So for Jung, that was the meaning of our sacrificial lives, is to render this service to God, uh, to recognize God's very existence. Yeah, it reminds me, before I interview, I leave out some, uh, now that it's spring, peanuts outside for the squirrels, and I like to watch the squirrels eating. And I'm like, you're not aware that you're eating. It's like I'm the one doing it for you. I'm bringing meaning to your life, squirrel, and I'll bring you peanuts every morning, and you'll eat it. And I, I love what Jung also said. He said, um, free will is doing exactly what you're supposed to do, which is what you're talking about. It. Uh, I, I thought it was constrained, but I no. I'm here for a purpose, just as Bernardo and the listener. And like he said, this purpose is amazing because it brings meaning to the universe. And it's whether my ego is going to sign on to this purpose or it's not and be in a lot of pain. I mean, and it's That's great because all of us have a, a, an amazing purpose. Yeah, purpose under Jungian philosophy, uh, um, although he rejected the uh, the, the term philosopher as attributed to himself uh, ultimately he did recognize it towards the end of his life that okay i am doing philosophy as well but under his philosophy you cannot escape meaning uh, even if you want to your, your life is never nihilistic it's it's never meaningless or purposeless you may not recognize it you may not may not see or understand what purpose you are serving but you are perforce always serving a purpose, um, a purpose defined by nature, by nature's instinctive unfolding. Nature wants to get somewhere instinctively, and we are the tools. Um, if you recognize that, you are free. You have the freedom of the slave. You are shackled, but you're free. <laughs> um, yeah, very few people understand the freedom of the slave, uh, the slave to the diamond. Uh, which was Jung's term for, you know, nature's right. forces that compel you in a certain direction. And your only choice is to say yes to that and cooperate or resist it. it you will go where, they, where it wants to bring you. It's a matter of you go kicking and screaming or with a smile on your face. And the smile on your face, that's our freedom. The freedom to acquiesce to a force, to a power much, much bigger than our, ourselves, which we ultimately serve whether we know it or not. 
Beautifully said. And in this systems, I'm sure some uh, viewers right now are going, well, where is God in all of this? And uh, how would Jung and your book deals with God? God, uh, um, tell the audience about God. I'm getting, for some reason, and maybe because I was reading uh, Giordano Bruno, I got Jung's concept of God and Bruno's God kind of similar. Am I? Well, this is the more tricky part uh, of, of Jungian philosophy, because he talked a lot about the God image, but the God image is not God. The God image is an archetypal experience that arises in us, uh, emerging from the collective unconscious. So strictly speaking, the God image only means that we have a natural tendency to conceive of a superior power outside space and time. In other words, a God, an omnipresent, omniscient, uh, omnipotent uh, uh, subject or psychic entity. Um, so that God image is empirically verifiable because you know over 90% of the population would say they believe in God. So clearly it's an archetypal belief. It's an archetypal experience. But that doesn't tell you that Jung believed in God itself. It only tells you that he recognized the empirically obvious fact that we have the tendency to form the idea of a deity. Now, I think Jung, although he resisted it uh, all the way until he wrote Answer to Job, um, Jung was a very religious person, and, 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 and he certainly believed in God. Actually, there is an interview in the 1950s in which he goes, I know. the question, and do you believe in God? And he says... No, I don't need to believe. I know. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> he had experiential acquaintance with that. He didn't have the need to form a conceptual hypothesis and decide whether he believed or not. It was a reality imposed on him since he was very young, since his dream of the, the phallic symbol under the, the earth, right. um, which for him, or, or, or his dream of, you know, the cathedral of Basel being destroyed by God in a, in a ludicrous way. Uh, he, he, he always understood that there is a force in the psyche uh, which he cannot control, but which controls him, can control what he thinks, what he feels. And for him, that was God. Uh, what's important to understand is that Jung's God is not a a Catholic or a Christian God. It's not the God of the sumum bonum, the, the God of pure good. Jung's God had, had a shadow side, uh, which in religion is called the devil. And for Jung, the devil is that part of mind that cuts your bullshit, that doesn't let you get away with your own snake venom, that tells you, oh, you think you're good? Let, 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 let me show you some <laughs> aspects of yourself. You know, um, It's that instigating entity that forces you to look at your own backstage, to, to, to recognize your own bullshit, your own evil. And because that's what renders you truly conscious in the Jungian sense. Um, so Jung's God had both these sides. And what Jung's God didn't have or doesn't have is meta-consciousness. So Jung's God is not able to pass a value judgment is not able to recognize that uh, what he did to Job was uh, a gratuitous torture. Mm -hmm. uh, why did God let that happen to Job? Because God is not metaconscious. And if you're not metaconscious, you cannot pass a value judgment in, in the sense of saying, this is good or this is bad, this is healthy or this is unhealthy, or I want this, but I don't want that. If you're purely instinctive, you cannot pass a value judgment. And for Jung, God, could not pass a value judgment. God needed us and the devil <laughs> uh, as instigating entity for metaconsciousness and, and as channels of metaconsciousness, which is what we are, uh, in order to be able to form a, 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 a evaluation about what's good, what's bad, what's desirable and what is undesirable. And that would be our service to God. And, and therefore our lives are not futile because there is something that God can only know through us, actually a whole lot of things. So we are not here like, you know, kids in a torturous school <laughs> that uh, only have to learn what the teacher already knows, which would make our suffering completely pointless because if God already knows what we know, everything we know, so why do we have to go through this shit? Uh, <laughs> for Jung, uh, it's only through us that God uh, knows that he knows. Or in Jungian words, and this is how Jung phrased it, 
it's only through us that God can consult his omniscience deliberately, um, which renders life uh, meaningful at all times because we, we are now researchers, not kids in a school. We are the leading edge. We are finding things that, uh, that were not known before us, a degree of self-awareness in nature that was not there before us. And that's our life of service and sacrifice, to render this service to God at the price of great suffering. Because once you become metacognitive, you suffer. Before that, you can have pain, but you cannot suffer. There are no regrets. There are no anxieties. After metaconsciousness, after the fall from the garden, after the fall from the garden, <laughs> Uh, after that, when you become metaconscious, you can suffer. You can regret the past and be afraid of the future. But it's only through that that we raise the level of self-awareness in nature and help God. As you write, well, in answer to Job, the uh, natural thing would eventually for God to become man, which brings us to Christ, the Logos. But you also write that the Garden of Eden is basically where Adam and Eve learn self-reflection something the Elohim could not do. Yes, I think, uh, and I believe Jung thought so too, because he gave enough, you know, dispersed hint about it throughout his writing, including his technical writing, that um, the fall is the fall into self-reflection. It's when Adam and Eve not only experienced that they were naked, sorry, it's not only when Adam and Eve experienced their nakedness, which presumably they were experiencing all the time because they were naked. But after they took a bite from the tree of the fruit of knowledge, uh, from the, <laughs> took a bite from the fruit of the tree of knowledge, um, they knew that they were naked. And that's when self-reflection arises, when metacognition arises, when you not only experience something, but you know that you are experiencing it. And then you can project your life into past and future. You can regret or be angry about the past and fear and be anxious about the future. Uh, and that's why the fall is, uh, is, is suffering. That's why we have to till the soil and eat from the shrubs that grow from the soil and ultimately go back to the soil. Uh, because if they can abide from that fruit and develop self-reflection. And notice that um, who instigates uh, Eve to do that is the serpent, which is the devil, and the devil fell first. Um, so the devil seems to have been set into helping his father, God, uh, develop self-awareness and, and cut his bullshit, <laughs> which is what <laughs> the devil does. The devil puts a mirror in front of you and say, look, you are judging this and you're saying that, and look at your own backstage. Look at your own crap, you know, that you're not uh, aware of. Um, and uh, he sort of recruited us uh, after the fall to render the same service to his father. <laughs> yeah. And going back to archetypes, as you said, Jung often, I know he changed or he would, I mean, he had years to sort of modify his ideas, but he talked about, yes, how archetypes could you could relate it to instincts? I like to think, uh, borrowing from other unions, they're the the formless images that are the building blocks of the collective unconscious. But what has always struck me interesting is he said that they are actually quasi aware. They do have agency beyond our interaction with the universe. I mean, what do you think of that? That's always struck me as. Uh, Kind of scary. I mean, he did write once, the unconscious has a thousand ways to snuff out a life. I mean, yeah, it's not just the pain, but these beings could uh, take you off the chessboard. Yeah, they are the currents of the ocean. <laughs> As you and said, the wind. Yeah. yeah. Uh, technically, the archetype is formless because it's just a, a sort of a template. Um, if you use a stencil, um, you know, the form itself is empty. That's the point of, of that template or the crystalline structure of a diamond. Before the diamond grows, you still, you already know what the structure will be, but it's only when the diamond actually grows that you give form and concreteness to that pre-existing template. So for Jung, an archetype is empty in the sense that it's only concrete when it's filled in, when you fill in the stencil. Um, when the diamond grows. But the concept of the archetype itself does not require this concreteness, this filling in. 
because it's an abstract recognition of a certain pattern or regularity of psychic behavior, a pattern or regularity that occurs across people throughout history. Um, but then he took a step further and he said that the archetypes can manifest not only in perceived images, you know, when you have a visionary experience, for instance, or when you're manifesting a certain behavior, which is archetypical, like uh, a mother feeding her infant, it's instinctive and therefore uh, an archetypical behavior, but that the archetypes can gain a certain psychic autonomy. In other words, then they can become embodied by a partly dissociated, not complete, subjectivity uh, or agency. So the manifestation of the archetype may be not an experience, not only an experience that you have or which manifests through you, but can be an experience that manifests through an agency, um, which he he called the daimons, not demons, daimons, A-I-M-O-N-S or D-A-E-M-O-N-S, which is a concept that comes all the way from Greek philosophy. Um, and therefore, the, arch the archetypes can become partly autonomous. Um, and, and this is somewhat scary in the sense that, uh, you know, when you're having an archetypal dream, maybe an entity in that dream is not only an image that you are making up and conjuring up in your own mind, but it, maybe it's an actual agent from the collective unconscious that is interacting with you in that sense. It, I understand why you use the word uh, scary, but ultimately <laughs> there is only one psyche for Jung. Ultimately, these are just dissociated complexes of one subjectivity, the collective unconscious itself. So the distinction between an agent and an image that you conjure up is not as fundamental as it sounds if you look one level deeper, because at the end of the day, it's all you anyway, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> Are you that you don't recognize? Are you that doesn't go by your name? But at the end of the day, it's all you anyway. Yeah, and uh, as he wrote, uh, a complex is uh, a complex always has an archetypal core, but then it's surrounded by trauma, past memories, and all that, and it just comes out. And that was that was really a, learning about that. As I mentioned, was sobering because I realized I have to recognize all my complexes. You know angry driving Miguel, hurt when he was a child, Miguel fights with his wife because there's a trigger, you know, there's so many of me. And uh, again, uh, I don't know about scary, but it's a lot of work. Do you think the like same? There are right? all the Bernardos you got to deal with throughout the day beyond the personas you wear. Bernardo, yeah. the philosopher, Bernardo, the businessman, Bernardo, the podcast interviewee. <laughs> and Bernardo, the child that uh, lost his father when he was 12. And, and, he, he, and it's like an onion. The more you discover about yourself in awe and surprise, the more you realize that you haven't even begun the process, that there are layers and layers and layers, and it's endless. It is endless. Uh, and uh, and uh, one of um, other Jung's most popular concept is that of synchronicities. Probably one of his most popular concepts, probably more uh, uh, sometimes abused, misused, whatever you want to call it. Uh, how would you define the, uh, a synchronicity? Look, for Jung, um, the world of matter out there was also governed by the same regularities that he called archetypes. Um, and, and that's his recognition that at the end of the day, there is only one psyche and we are just diamonds or partly dissociated experiential complexes of this one psyche, which extends endlessly, not only inwards, but outwards as well. And it governs the world around you. As Jung put it, uh, if you don't heed the archetype in your own inner life, it will manifest itself outside and you will call it fate. Um, why? Because the world is also a psychic manifestation, the world outside, and it will unfolding according to these regularities, these archetypal regularities that we experience within ourselves. And when it does, then there is a correspondence of meaning between what you feel within and what unfolds outside. And that correspondence of meaning or meaningful coincidence is what Jung called a synchronicity. But... Um, if you think about it, it is a necessary implication of his implicit philosophy, 
because if the world itself is the unfolding of the psyche of the collective unconscious uh, and it is unfolding according to the same archetypes which are the patterns and regularities of meaning then of course uh, there should be instances in which your own inner experience the meaning that is unfolding within it will correspond to the meaning that is unfolding in the world because these are two two different sides of the same process so it's like two camera angles of the same soccer match mm. so that you know when there's a goal scored in one camera angle there is also a goal scored in the other camera angle should not surprise everyone because they are just camera angles of one and the same thing the soccer match now we get amazed because we ignore the soccer match we think that all that exists are the camera images that they are standalone realities. So when there is a meaningful coincidence, we go like, oh my God, how can it be? Well, how could it not be? It's yeah. like expecting the two camera angles of the soccer match. In one of them, you see a goal. In the other one, you will not. And it cannot be. Yeah, they're very so, common, actually. Yeah. They should be common. And actually, synchronicities are happening all the time. You could argue that everything is a synchronicity. It's just that most of them don't impress us with any depth because we do not have the scope of metacognition to recognize all the links of meaning. Most chains of meaning that are unfolding outside and within us uh, go undetected because we just do not have the ability to keep track of the chains of meaning. It's too broad. It's too large. <laughs> so it escapes us. So we, we talk of coincidence or mechanistic law uh, but for Jung and this is something that he himself recognized and you see that in, an, in his correspondence with uh, Wolfgang Pauli the, the, the Nobel Prize winning physicist he recognizes that if he is correct in his hypothesis of synchronicity then causality itself should be just a superficial appearance of synchronicity that uh, the entire universe nature as a whole unfolds according to correspondences of meaning and when we recognize some of those regularities we call them the laws of physics and we don't see the meaning behind them because we do not have the cognitive cognitive scope to appreciate the enormous unfathomable chains of meaning underlying them uh, but but causality itself would be just an expression of of the archetypes and he went as far as to consider numbers archetypes of order and if you remember if you remind yourself for a moment that all the laws of physics are are stated in numerical form then you know the direct implication is if numbers are archetypes of order then so are the laws of physics and therefore what we call causality is in fact synchronicity um, that's that's the ultimate horizon of Jungian philosophy yeah and you know for the audience uh two very uh well i admire individuals dr jeffrey mishlove writes the preface and then of course uh james hollis who's probably many consider the leading mind when it comes to young in the 21st century he wrote uh the last part of your book and i always loved uh hollis's uh definition of a synchronicity a casual non-casual principle of connection Things are connected with cause effects, things connected in time and are connected because they have meaning to an experience. They are real because of a synchronicity happens only in you. It proves the autonomy of the psyche and the unconscious is in connection with us all the time. And we don't know all the rules by which this world is connected. Don't ignore synchronicities. That was from one of his books. So I there you go. Like, Do something with it. That's what James Hollis always said. And you had, yeah, you write about the very cool synchronicity with a, a four-sided pyramid in your life? Uh, yes, that was when I was, uh, sorry about my cat uh, stepping on the way here. Um, <laughs> when I was doing research for this book, I, of course, went to Switzerland, I went to the place where Jung was born. Mm -hmm. um, not because I was doing bibliographical research, because these days everything's on the net, you know, even the... You can have electronic access even to the protocols, you know, the, the writings that underlie Jung's autobiography. And to question how auto <laughs> that autobiography <laughs> was, but never mind. Um, so I was there and um, I, I, I was walking around in, uh, in um, Lake Constance, Bodensee in, in German. Um, 
And uh, and I was reminiscing about uh, the story Jung tell in his biography about you know chancing upon uh, a red rock in the lake shore which looked like a four-sided pyramid and it was exactly what he was what he needed to complete a little model he was making of a church using pebbles um, and I was reminiscing about that and of course you know I I had my feet in Lake Constance and as I was thinking about it so you when you have that thought, you immediately look down. It's a trivial association. And guess what? Right in front of me, there was a red four-sided pyramidal pebble, one and a half inch in length, which is exactly what Jung describes. Then I was astonished. And then, of course, I started thinking, oh, there probably are dozens of these stones. It's probably a common pattern of erosion. So I started looking around, and I looked, and I really looked uh, for, for a while. And there was no other stone like that, no other pebble like that uh, in the lake. And then I thought maybe I saw it first, and but uh, subliminally. And that's why I started thinking about Jung's stone. But no, because I, I knew that I was watching, I was looking at the place where I knew Jung was born. And, 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 and I was thinking about Jung and his birth and the first six months of his life when he was at the shores of Lake Constance. Um, and I was looking straight ahead. I was looking at um, the, the, sp the spire. Is that the correct name? The spire of the spire. little uh, local church uh, in Cassville. Um, and I knew that. And it, I was reminiscing for a while, looking straight ahead. I was walking very slowly on the shore of the lake. So I couldn't have seen it first. So, you know, synchronicity. And two days later, in a very remote valley of the Swiss Alps, um, uh, I chanced upon a pyramidal boulder, <laughs> not a rock, a boulder, like a yard or more high. Um, it, it was like an echo, you know, a synchronistic echo. It's like uh, the collective unconscious telling me, you know, if you have any doubt about the first time, which I didn't, here's something else for you, a gigantic yeah. four-sided pyramidal boulder. And of course, I photographed the whole thing because I, I needed the photograph to remind myself that that really happened. And the pebble I brought back home with me, the boulder I couldn't, it was gigantic. <laughs> Wow, happening all the time. Have you had a chance to read the black books yet, Bernardo? I read the red book, uh, and the black books, I think, are inserted in a part of... Yeah, I think they are, the, the black books are in the, in the red book. Yeah, well, they, they just released the black, the full black books, I think, last October. So people are still trying to unpack them. There are, yes, there is sections and quotations, but the full black books just came out kept getting later and later because of covid the but. black books were uh, where jung wrote first uh, mm -hmm. the yes of visionary experience and then he transcribed those to by the hand yeah or at least sections by hand to the red book but there's a lot he left out that now okay. they're really trying to dig into so more insights and uh just out of curiosity are there any movies that you think or tv shows that you say this is this is Jungian, this is really good young stuff not uh i think not like the movie was it a dangerous profession which is about uh, Jung and Freud. Uh, sorry a dangerous <laughs> method which is all over the place <laughs> it's probably an accurate story but uh, it's it's not it's not what matters about Jung. uh it tells some you know events of his life that scandalized people but that's not why the man is valuable you know it's not for his uh, affront to swiss morality <laughs> in the <laughs> early 20th century um I, I i once had a discussion with you and someone else uh about this um but uh, it yeah robert bono we talked about uh, kuzlovsky and his movies yeah, yeah. Yeah, Kislovsky's movies, uh, there is a hint of Jung um, because of the of the meaningful coincidences that, you know, for instance, in La Double Vie de Véronique, uh, 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 Véronique stumbling upon Veronica without knowing it while she's having a trip uh, in mm -hmm. Poland during a protest, a political protest. That's a kind of synchronicity and, and, and the longing they have for one another without knowing that the other exists. These are all Jungian themes because they, they appeal to the collective psyche that underlies our ordinary ego mind. Um, but I wouldn't be able to name, and, and Jung's influence is so widespread that most people don't even recognize it. For instance, when you talk about, oh, that guy is introvert. Well, that's a Jungian concept. 
uh, introversion, extroversion, or, or the, the idea of the persona. That's also a Jungian concept or, or you know, the collective unconscious that we already talked about. So I think his influence is so widespread that it's difficult to pin down one, one movie that really encapsulates the, uh, no, the whole of Jung. I don't think it's even possible. No, his no. legacy is too broad to, to, to capture in one work. Yeah, I would agree. And uh, do you use any Jungian techniques for yourself? I admit, uh, I would die. I, I want to see a Jungian analyst. I, my every regular therapist I go to, I start talking about shadow and complexes and all that, and they look at me like, "Uh oh, this guy might be hopeless." But <laughs> I want to connect with somebody who knows Jung. But obviously, as I've told the audience, I do uh, dream work, uh, contemplation, uh, the I Ching in a Jungian way to really get a dialogue with archetypes in my psyche. What about you, Bernardo? Has he helped you out through your life? Active imagination is mm. is a must. I think um, it, it's important uh, that uh, that we have that we ap apply this method. Um, and in the beginning, it feels very artificial. It's like you're making it all up, what you're imagining, and you are, <laughs> and you are, <laughs> you are. But uh, at some point, especially when you're really tired of it and you're no longer you no longer believe it, and you're just doing it, you know, because of inertia, then it acquires some kind of autonomy, and that's when it becomes valuable. Uh, active imagination is very valuable to me. I, I often uh, imagine myself talking to Jung, and uh, and sometimes he says things that are surprising, and then he may say, "Well, you made that up." Of course, I did, but it's a <laughs> part of me that's normally not accessible to my ego, and therein lies the value of of active imagination. So, active, active imagination is key, and a, a tradition in my life, which I do I take it very seriously. I, I I wouldn't know how to describe how seriously I take it. I don't I don't know whether I take it very seriously or not. But every year on New Year's uh, uh, morning, so after midnight, like in one two in the morning, um, I throw the I Ching, and mm -hmm. I never throw the I Ching at any other time. Wow. I only throw it because it has to be. A special thing, otherwise it becomes banal, um, and then the whole point of synchronicity vanishes. So you have to charge it with your own psychic energy, and it's impossible to do that if you're throwing it every day. You will banalize it, you bastardize it, and then it, it then it's causality. Um, so I invest it with psychic charge uh, that has built up for a year. <laughs> <laughs> then I throw the itching, and. Um, it has been remarkably accurate over the years. Wow. Yeah. And, and it's difficult to, to dismiss the itching as you can dismiss astrology in the sense that, you know, um, uh, uh, the Sunday uh, astrology report uh, is so generic that everybody can find him or herself in it because it's so generic. Now, you can't say the same about the itching. The itching is extraordinarily specific. Um, so it's very difficult to dismiss the, when it works, to, to just say, well, whatever happened, I would fit into this. No, no, because many of the itching results are outright contradictory. They're opposites, and they are so specific. So, yeah, I, I think I take it a little seriously. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes the I Ching seems to be wagging its finger at me and hectoring me, but, uh, <laughs> oh boy. And um, to end, as we get to the end, I think for the audience, uh, some valuable advice about Jung, especially in these very strange times that we live in today. And I think we discussed it, that we discussed it, that it's very important for people to know that you do have a meaning. You may be in this little boat, but... Once you go with the flow, you'll find out what your purpose is and you will get closer to individuation. I think that's so important. Nobody in this earth is is meaningless. We all have an incredible uh, destiny or purpose. And it's about, again, listening to the things underneath us. I see one advice. What other advice? The other advice I think you might agree with me, Bernardo, is that of projection. Mm 
I think, uh, especially when you go on social media and the media <clears throat> regular, everybody's projecting their shadow upon others. And I follow you, your Facebook group, and you are so patient with people. And even if they're just complex, a shadow of putting it, you're just like, no, no, no. And once in a while, you'd be like, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to kick you out if you say it again. <laughs> but uh, would you say that's the other one? Stop projecting. I wasn't always like this, and I and I have my shadow projections still. Of course, uh, um, there has been progress for sure. Um, um, I am a lot more patient uh, now than I was ten years ago. Um, I am a lot more vulnerable to empathy than I was um, ten years ago. Uh, it's almost an unavoidable thing in this path that uh, you develop empathy. It's unavoidable, and empathy hurts. It's not something that you know you should you know, celebrate that uh, that you acquired. It's useful, but it does hurt, especially in the crazy world of suffering in which we are living today. Mm -hmm. If you expose yourself to the 8 o'clock news every day and you have empathy, you, you, know, you will burn. You mm -hmm. crash and burn. Um, but I think you, you, you nailed it. I think the most important part of Jung's legacy is that whether you know it or not, whether you recognize it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you see it or not, your life has meaning. How, however much you have suffered, however much you have regretted, however much time and energy you have wasted, how, however low the opinion is that you have of yourself, um, your life has unavoidable, intrinsic, inherent meaning. And it's not about you. It has never been about you, and it will never be about you. You are a process of nature serving a much higher purpose beyond your comprehension. And all that you can do to help you out is to smell the perfume of this purpose. You don't, need, don't really need to conceptualize it, to sort of corral it in a mathematical equation, because that's not how it works. We are monkeys that evolved in a marginal planet of a marginal solar system in a marginal galaxy. We are not never going to corral that in a neat logical story. But if you smell the scent of it, because it's surrounding you at all times, then take it seriously. Don't dismiss it because some crazy materialist scientist is telling you that it's nihilism, it's all for nothing, we are here for no purpose and you're going nowhere. That's his trip or her trip, usually his. Uh, men are more, more susceptible to this kind of nonsense. Uh, uh, <laughs> it, it's his trip. Don't buy into his trip. Uh, um, you are surrounded in truth, whether you see it or not. So pay more attention to what is surrounding you, to, to the smell that is surrounding you at all times. Then somebody else's narrative, somebody else's trip. Beautifully said, and I love it. And uh, I hope it's useful to you, audience. I think uh, Jung is more important than ever in these very strange times that we live in. As I say, these Philip K. Dick world. And Philip K. Dick was very influenced by Jung. Like he said, he comes at you from different places. So, uh, well, we are at the end. Before we go, uh, Bernardo, and I'll have it on the show notes. I'll have it uh, flashing on the screen. Work, But for those that are just listening in audio... Where can they find more about you and your work? Uh, everything is linked to my website. That's bernardocastrop.com. So Bernardo Castrop, one word, Castrop with a K. Uh, and there you have links to free videos, uh, interviews, podcasts, books, essays, um, academic articles, uh, um, even, even a thesis or another. Um, most of it uh, free to download. Well, check it out, audience, and definitely get his book because it's a great book. It's not a, it's not a big read, 150 pages or so, and it's just full of great insights on uh, getting in your boat and sailing the right way, as we said. It's a great, great analogy. But uh, as always, Bernardo, thank you very much for coming uh, on the show this time, for coming on Finding Hermes. It's been a great pleasure. I'm happy to be here. And there you have it, Bernardo Castrop, really whew, bringing it to the house, the house of the Pleroma. I always love his work, and uh, I hope, and I'm pretty sure there are some tools there 
to, uh, again, get you through, walk through those doors with Hermes, the god of the mind. And at least you have a new perspective on the spiritual, mystical, and, well, metaphysical aspects of Carl Jung, which uh, his contributions are just amazing. And we will be having uh, more Jungian shows in the future because this is the time to go inward if there's an, any time in human history to do so. This is the age of Hermes. I love how Bernardo talks about the active imagination, and I certainly need to uh, incorporate that into my psycho-spiritual practices, and will do so. But again, there's always help out there. There's things we can all do and add to our days. Uh, to our existence to, uh, again, be uh, stop being that little ship in the vast ocean and get to understand the vast ocean that we are. Because like Bernardo said and I said, you matter. You matter a lot. It's just, uh, it's a matter of just, uh, well, like that cliche goes, uh, don't fight against the wind, but adjust your sails. And I hope that's what we're doing here at Finding Hermes. Beyond active imagination, as I've mentioned, there are other Jungian techniques you can use. There's uh, dream journaling, shadow work, regular journaling, meditation, um, divination practices like the I Ching or the tarot or astrology that will help you get into a dialogue with uh, your psyche, a dialogue with the gods, with the pleroma. Um, those will really help. I like, uh, we did discuss archetypes, but I like this saying by the brilliant and amazing Becca Tarnas, past guest here, well, actually at Aeon Bite, and uh, she definitely knows Jung very well, and she said that an archetype is a universal that comes through in particular concretes. Simple and cool. Another thing that should be mentioned, too, is beyond all these tools for uh, Jungian individuation, for you uh, understanding the great vast ocean that you are, is certainly, uh, well, doing some uh, Jungian analysis. At the end of the day, it's not a do-it-alone project, and uh, I think Jung was tapping into the ancient... Uh, practices of the Gnostics and the Hermetics, where you had a, a psychopant and a hierophant, and the hierophant was there to help guide the the psychopant, psychopant, whatever you want to call it. Pronunciation is not one of my better qualities, but uh, to uh, to help a student go into the underworlds and up into the astral planes. And of course, this is the great metaphor for our unconscious and eventually to the higher places of our mind. Where God is, as uh, Bernardo said, God is uh, the highest aspect of our consciousness. So that's important, and I know uh, it's not not everyone, including me, can find a Jungian analyst. But keeping that mindset, whether you're working with your uh, regular therapist, your priest, your AA uh, sponsor, or anybody like that, keeping that Jungian aspect that you need to be guided through and learn more about yourself is something to keep in mind and something pretty important. I wonder, God, it'd be great if you could find some uh, remote uh, digital Jungian analysts out there, because I would certainly jump on it. Uh, living here in uh, the countryside of Illinois near a town called Wakanda, uh, I don't have, there's, I think the closest Jungian analyst for me is like 30 miles or 20 miles. So, and I understand it's the same with others, but uh, again, I do try to keep that Jungian vibe. And even with my regular therapist, I bring in my dreams, uh, my world of symbols and other things to the table to, again, get that dialogue because in the end you are having a dialogue with your psyche. And I'm sure with a lot of people, and I've been there myself in life, sometimes your uh, hierophant might have to be imaginary, might have to be a disassociative uh, part of yourself that helps you go through those doors, uh, very much like Bernardo was talking about, uh, which eventually happens when you start using the active imagination technique. 
So that's really all I got. I can't, it's hard for me to uh, even try to add to what Bernardo brought to the table, but um, I hope you've enjoyed it. We got other great guests, both on Aeon Bite and Finding Hermes this spring and into the summer. And as always, it's all about helping you uh, find the means to walk through those doors, lay your cards on the table, and become transparent to the transcendent. And that way, well, you'll realize you are that entire amazing undivided ocean of self, which is your birthright, which is what you're here to do, and then find out what your great mission is to perform to help make the universe more whole. Thank you as always. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.